O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing into your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All throughout the month of October, we have been reading together through the book of Hebrews. But the book of Hebrews, like many of the books of the Bible, is a name given to the text at a much later date. The original letter has no title. It was written in Greek, not Hebrew. But it draws clearly and deeply on images and scripture and concepts found in the Hebrew Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament. In particular, the letter draws heavily from the book of Leviticus, not everybody's favorite book of the Bible, particularly chapter 16 of the book of Leviticus, which is a chapter that describes the role of the high priest on the most holy day of Israel's life, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And because of this imagery and the, the letter's deep, deep connection to the Levitical worship life of ancient Israel, the scholars speculate that this letter was originally written to Jewish converts to Christianity living in the vicinity of Jerusalem. These were Christians who had grown up with the laws and rituals of Judaism. They had grown up in the shadow of the temple built on the highest point of the city. Most of them had probably never set foot on the temple mount and let alone ever have gone into the Holy of Holies. And yet their entire life had been shaped and formed by the temple, by the law, by the sacrifices, and by the role of the high priest who represented them before God. But because of where they lived, these Christians had possibly seen Jesus. At the very least, they were living where he walked, talked, lived, died, and lived again. And so they were intimately aware of who Jesus is and intimately aware of their calling, their calling to serve Jesus. And yet, years had gone by, and Jesus had not returned. Decades, in fact. And by 30 years later, this church of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had begun to struggle. 
The first recipients of the letter to the Hebrews were members of a congregation whose faith had begun on a high point. They had a vivid sense of who God is and the gospel and the Spirit's work in their lives. Now, their faith in Jesus had begun to ostracize themselves from other Jewish persons living in Jerusalem. They had perhaps become distant, uh, grown distant from friends they had grown up with, maybe even family members who had not come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. In many ways, they had become outsiders in their own city. And at first, this drew the congregation together as they leaned on one another and as they trusted the Spirit of God in their midst. But it seems that over time, that sense of community had begun to fade. The life of the congregation oftentimes fell short of the kingdom of God. Things became dull and sluggish. People became indifferent to each other. They became sporadic in their participation. It seems that in that congregation there in Jerusalem, they had lost the vitality and its spiritual intensity. And the congregation had begun to decline, not because of some major crisis of faith, but through simple neglect. Now, the truth is, this happens all the time in congregations. You know, very few congregations in the world close their doors because of some major theological crisis. But every day, congregations around the world and in our country close because people just became tired and stopped coming. That after decades of doing this thing called faith over and over, they just decided to stop. This seems to be what's happening in this congregation to which the letter to the Hebrews is written. And so, the writer of Hebrews takes up the challenge to reinvigorate this congregation. He sees a congregation that is faltering and discouraged, and he offers a remedy, and and this is what he does. He, He doesn't offer a new worship service, as much as that might help. Uh, He doesn't suggest reorganizing the committees or uh, redoing the budget. He doesn't even recommend hiring a a really good, new, dynamic preacher, as much as I like to think that helps. Instead, he's bold enough to suggest that what the congregation really needs to do is to be reminded of who they worship, to be refreshed on the nature and meaning of their faith, and to reclaim their identity as priests. 
those who had been through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ offered an opportunity to serve in the Holy of Holies. The calling for them to join the great high priest Jesus in serving at the throne of God. Now remember, most of these Christians had grown up looking up at the temple, never imagining that they would have the opportunity to serve there, mostly because most of them were not Levites, not members of the priestly tribe. They had been taught to idolize the priests, but never to imagine becoming one of them. And particularly when they saw what some of the priests had done in conspiring against their Messiah. How can we imagine that we would want to live like that? And so the writer of the letter to the Hebrews offers this response. Jesus is a different kind of priest than the one you're used to thinking of. Just as he was a different type of king than the one you've normally thought of. And he's not even descended from the Levites either. So you're not off the hook. And so in chapter 5, he gets to this point. Now, first, he reminds everyone that priests are chosen by God. They don't get to choose themselves. They are chosen by God to make an offering of forgiveness for the sins of the whole people, and that no one can dare to choose that task on their own. Each priest is called. Likewise, Jesus did not choose himself, but rather was appointed by God who sent him to us. And he then quotes a portion of Psalm 110, a psalm of David proclaiming the Lord's blessing on the king, but also the commission, you are to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Everyone got that? You are priests according to the order of Melchizedek. Now you might be thinking, who in the world is Melchizedek? I'm so glad you asked, because I have this whole other section of the sermon. You see, the letter of Hebrews, he's drawing this, this masterful image of the temple, this idealized vision of the kingdom of God, being like living in the temple, not just on top of the mountain, but the temple of the whole world, for in Jesus the temple is open and stands wide for anyone and everyone to come. And Jesus is the high priest, but his priesthood is so much older than the temple that you see. In fact, he says, we're talking about the priesthood of Melchizedek. And what the preacher of Hebrews is doing is taking us back to a time thousands of years before these Christians in Jerusalem were living. All the way back 
before the Levitical laws, before Moses and the covenant, before any of this, all the way back to Abraham, the father of many nations. So it's okay if you don't remember Melchizedek because he's buried in the middle of nowhere in Genesis chapter 14. And there we read the story of Abram who's been told to get up, leave your land, and go to a new land that I'm not going to show you yet where you're going to become the father of many people, great number of descendants, you and your wife Sarah. Now granted, they're in their 80s at this point and they're really doubting this is going to happen, but they get up and they go. And on the way, Abram keeps bumping into other kings and getting in trouble. And at one point, he's just committed a daring rescue of his nephew Lot. He's running for his life and he bumps into another king. But this king is a mysterious figure. He calls himself Melchizedek, king of Salem. And when Abram says, well, Melchizedek, I I hope that you will spare my life and allow my family to dwell here for a moment and not kill me. He says, well, I am a priest of the Most High God. That's an impressive name, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Abram is impressed, and he bows down to pay him homage. And then this mysterious Melchizedek offers Abram a blessing. A blessing for Abram and the task to which the great and most high God has called him to. And in response, Abram offers Melchizedek a tenth of all of his wealth. It's the first tithe in the Bible. So don't be mad at me, thank Abram. And then Abram continues along the journey and we never hear of Melchizedek again. As quickly as this mysterious king slash priest shows up, he's gone. Now what's amazing is Melchizedek, this funny name, is actually itself a title. Melchizedek, king of Salem, is really Melchizedek, king of Salem. I know everyone loves an an old Hebrew lesson. His name is king of righteousness, king of Salam, peace. Abram is running for his life fearful of everyone trying to kill him, and he bumps into this mysterious priestly king named the King of Righteousness and the King of Peace. And so, the letter to the Hebrews says, you may be wondering what kind of priest Jesus will be. He's like Melchizedek a king of righteousness, a king of peace, a priest of the Most High God.
Now, I know this may not hit you in all the fields, but for this struggling congregation, in the shadow of a temple they were no longer welcome to be in, because of their faith in Jesus, to hear that their Lord, their Messiah, was like this ancient, mysterious figure, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. This reminded them that their faith had deep roots. That they worshipped a God who had been at work in the life of Israel for thousands of years and was still at work in the life of their congregation. When they worshipped Jesus, they followed a priest like Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Or as the city would be referred to in their own day, the king of Jerusalem, the city of peace. So, what are we to do? We modern day priests. Because that's the truth. Over in 1 Peter, we read the reminder that we are all a royal priesthood, a holy nation. All of us are called to serve. All of us are called to minister. Now some of us are invited to wear fancy robes, but trust me, all of us are called to be priests. One other thing about the priesthood, the ancient Israelite priesthood, it was quite possible to live your entire life as a priest and never go to work. Not because you were lazy, but because there were many priests and no priest could claim to serve on their own behalf. They had to be called. And so you would spend your entire life training to be a priest and then on a given year, in a given month, your section of priests would be called to go to the temple to work. And so you would show up ready to work and then they would cast lots to see which of you who had trained and shown up to work that day would actually get to go in and offer the sacrifices. And then they would cast another lot to see which one of you, after having done the sacrifice, would then get to take the sacrifice into the sanctuary. And so it was possible that you would spend your entire life as a priest and never get to serve. And yet they showed up because it was not something that they desired to do for their own glory, but because they were responding to God's call. And so each of us are called to be priests. You showed up this morning not thinking you were going to get to work or have to work. But in your singing, 
in your worship, in your offerings, in your very presence, you have served as priests of the Most High God this morning. And as you leave and go back into the world, you are called to continue serving as priests. Those who bear the good news into the world, those who share the love of our high priest Jesus to the world. As we leave this holy place, we enter a world that God has made and called us to serve and love. Now, does that reinvigorate a congregation? I'm not sure but it definitely raises the stakes of what we're doing. For none of us are simply attenders. We are priests, a royal people, a holy nation, servants of the Most High God. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we come to you grateful that you have called to us this morning. Called us into life, given us the breath that we breathe, invited us into communion with you and with one another. And Lord, we know that to whom you call, you also empower to serve. And so we pray that as we leave this place, we may go forth as holy priests, serving you in the world that you have made. Help us to not lose hope or heart. Strengthen our hands. And help us to show the love of your son Jesus to everyone we meet. And when we might feel unworthy, Lord, remind us of who we are. Priests serving alongside your Son, our High Priest. Help us to understand that you have given all to the world. And you ask us, to share your love to all that we meet. And so we unite our hearts and voices together in your spirit as we boldly unite our voices with the prayer that our high priest taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.